Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Well, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Soundtracking with Edith Bowman, my weekly podcast that dives into the creative minds and uh, joys of people in the world of film, music and TV. I hope you are having a good week. You've had a good week. Maybe you've been to the cinema to see some stuff. I saw a couple of things last week. I saw uh, Robert Eggers' new film, uh, The Northman, which stars oh, many brilliant people, including Alexander Skarsgård, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, Nicole Kidman. And he's such a great filmmaker. Um, it's out in cinemas, I think this coming Friday, the, um, what will that be, the 15th of April? Um, and well worth seeing. It's a kind of epic tale, but with his stamp of kind of beauty and intricate cinema. So fingers crossed, going to try and get him on the show at some point, maybe for this, maybe for the next film. But bear with me as I type furiously and send emails to multiple people. Talking of sending emails, we'd really like to start featuring you guys on the show um, through your communication. So we'd love for you to drop us an email. Uh, it's very simple. Info at edithbowman.com is the easy email address to drop us uh, your thoughts and observations, wants and needs when it comes to the podcast. So that's info at edithbowman.com because we love hearing from you guys and a lot of you get in touch via social media. For example, James Ray, thank you so much. He just listened to the Paul Thomas Anderson episode and very much enjoyed it. We very much appreciate you getting in touch and letting us know that as well. Uh, James uh, as well, who loved the episode where I spoke to Pina Toprak from last week. Thank you very much. An honest conversation about her creative process and passion for her projects. Thank you so much for that, James. Great to have you with us. Also, Inika, I loved um, how she finally got round to listening to the Dave Grohl episode, which um, she absolutely loved. And Jeff Wilson says that he has added Slow Horses to his wish list, which is this new show that's on Apple TV. And it stars um, Gary Oldman, Jack Loudon, and I'm hopefully going to be chatting to Jack this week. So we'll be talking about Slow Horses on the show in the next couple of weeks. So in the meantime, maybe you can start watching it on Apple. Pantaloni, thank you very much indeed for your your just love of the show. He says, kept me going through lockdown in between my hospital shifts. My hero Spielberg was the absolute highlight of all your interviews. Can't wait for more. Um, thank you very much indeed. So we'd love to hear from you. Please do get in touch either on email info at edithbowman.com or on social media. We are at Soundtrack in UK. Now, I mentioned Pinner Toprak there, who was our guest from last week, a fantastic female composer. And for the second week in a row, we welcome another female composer. Um, and I know that, it, it, well, I hope that it gets to the point where we don't need to kind of celebrate that. But it's sometimes quite hard to get a hold of people and to get the opportunity to shout out and celebrate about uh, women in composing. But thankfully, uh, we have incredible support and women who are more than happy to chat to us. So it is an absolute delight given the underrepresentation of women in the industry. Anne Nicotin star is very much on the rise after she made her big breakthrough working with Bart Layton on The Imposter and American Animals. I absolutely loved both those films and their scores. And so we're going to begin with a cue from American Animals 
from Anne Nicotin's score. This is Don't Touch the Model. Welcome to Soundtrack and finally! Yay! It's been ages, oh, hasn't it? I know. Because I remember we met a, a, a wonderful evening in East London, which was celebrating female composers. That's right. And I'm trying to remember who was all part of that night. There was yourself, Amelia was there, uh, Emily Levinis Farouche was there. But it wasn't just a kind of, oh, here's, it was live. Yeah. It was um, beautiful interpretations of some of your work. That's quite a rarity. Yes, absolutely. It was a rarity. And uh, I think that was put on by the London Contemporary Orchestra. And it was such a brilliant celebration of the women composers in the UK. Yeah. And there aren't that many of us. So (laughs) still. (laughs) Yeah, still. I mean, there are more and more coming up. Yeah. I do get emails from young female composers who want to break into the industry. And it's really lovely to receive those emails. Whereas I was always the one, maybe two female composers in my class all the way through university and, and, and beyond. Now I've heard the classes are becoming more That's great. full, you know, sometimes 50-50. So that's yeah. really interesting. Before we talk about specific projects, do you mind talking about that journey into composing for, well, for the move and image, I guess, Is, if, if that was always your plan or how you, how, what that journey was to that point of, of starting to compose for for the moving image, really? Well, I started writing music when I was very little. I, I wouldn't say write, but I would make up songs and yeah. sing them into the tape recorder and <laughs> made my own sort of notation when I was little. I didn't know what I was doing, but I would write things down. And it was just always a huge part of my life. Mm. I was stuck to my Walkman constantly and then a Discman. Yeah. And, uh, Third limb, and, another yeah. limb. Yes, more than exactly. three. We have, we have more than three limbs, but another <laughs> an extra limb, I think, is what I meant to say. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And... Just really wanted to be involved in music and writing music, um, not so much performing because I, I just have a little bit of a fear of performance, mm-hmm. and I don't just never thought I was good enough. But writing was just my, my go-to place, and what I would do in my spare time as a teenager as well. I thought I wanted to be sort of writing rock music and all of that, but realised actually I really loved the orchestra, and even though I was listening to grunge and shoegaze and all of those bands back then in the 90s I really loved writing for classical instruments. Were you trained in specific instrumentation? So I grew up learning the piano yeah and I self-taught on the guitar but uh, not very well (laughs) but I can play chords (laughs) and um, I I, and it was just music lessons at school Mm. but I had this incredible teacher called Mr. Wright 
who was just always encouraging and he even called my parents to say, you know, you must let Anne pursue music if she wants to. She really loves it. It's oh, her wow. passion. And, um, and he, when, I, when we were doing A-levels, um, I was doing A-level music, he brought on an um, American woman composer who was living in Holland doing her PhD. And she would give us weekly lessons at my school. You know, at the time, I didn't really think much of it. Yeah. Other than that, I loved it. And yeah. she was incredible, this sort of force of nature, just, you know, instilling all this passion in me for atonal yeah. music and minimalism and everything that was out there completely opened my eyes to that. And she would get us to write pieces of music in all the different uh, genres. And I think that really made me realize that, oh, there's a woman composer. <laughs> I think she was the first one yeah. that I'd seen or heard of. And I didn't really think much of it. But I th when I look back at it now, I think that was instrumental in influencing me and making me think I could do that too. Yeah. And um, when I went on to pursue music and I decided I wanted to be a, a composer, mm -hmm. I called her and I said, what do you think? And she said, do you have your parents' support? You know, it was quite an, an important question. I said, well, I do. You know, she said, you know, emotionally, financially. Yeah. And I said, um, I, I think so, although they're terrified. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and she said, go for it. It's a really hard life, but you want it and I think you can do it and I think you should go for it. So I did it. At the time, I thought it, it would be contemporary music, but as I pursued my degree, I realized I just really loved film music. When I was 17, I watched a film, The Piano, <gasps> as we all know. Oh, yeah. And I just fell in love with the movie and the music mm. and thought, oh, that's something maybe I'd like to do. Well, it's quite a it's quite a unique and specific mm. within that. For we've talked about it a few times actually on the show. Desperately trying to get Jane Campion to talk about <laughs> that and Power of the Dog. Um, it hopefully might still happen, but um, but it's 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 such a unique thing, isn't it? Because that film, it's not just a score. No. It's not just diegetic music. No. It's, it's it's her voice. Yeah, yeah. It plays a completely unique role, doesn't mm -hmm. it? And um, I just thought about that movie for such a long time afterwards and I think it I think all of these forces just came together and so by the end of my uh, contemporary composition degree I thought well I, that's the direction I want to pursue now yeah. so now what do I do <laughs> 
Um, as part of your degree, did you have to write anything for that's similar to what you're doing now? Oh, no, I was not allowed. <laughs> you not can't have to. major minor chords in avant-garde music. <laughs> 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 no, it was a real division. And I, I don't oh, know wow. what it's like anymore, yeah. if it's still like that. But you, I mean, film music was just third rate. I suppose it was like so back in the day, yeah. an opera, you know, had the German opera was, was serious and the Italian opera was taken as a joke at the time and it was almost the same thing the contemporary music composers looked down on film music oh, and wow. so when I told my professor that I wanted to pursue film music he wasn't very happy at all he's trying to <laughs> persuade me uh to stick to the avant-garde world and you know I felt like a sellout in many ways to in their eyes even yeah. though I sort of felt that I knew better that actually <laughs> There's, you know, film music has has its merits. Yeah. Do you do you think that's changed? I think so. I mean, I've been to a couple of concerts now, um, put on by the LCO, and and that's where I I felt that a lot of influences were going into contemporary music, mm-hmm. not just because uh, the contemporary music I was learning at the time was sort of a follow on from history, very strict rules and traditions, whereas the contemporary music I was listening to some years ago. Um, just had influences from everywhere. Yeah. And the music I was hearing was so interesting and so brilliant. I really wouldn't have been allowed to do it. I remember having a C major chord in my final piece at my university and everyone was going, oh, oh, this is too much. You know, <laughs> you, know you need to mess it up a little bit. Oh, wow. um, yeah, it was a very, very strange world. That's so interesting. We've never really had a conversation like this about the kind of I guess the kind of accessibility of of the music and how it's perceived within its own industry almost in a way mm. as well. You said, I'm going to go for it. What did that involve then in terms of finishing your degree? And we're, we're fast forward into a few years later mm. and you've just created some of the most wonderful and beautiful compositions. But what was that journey into that first step? That was a very hard time for me. Um, it took me a long time to get my first paid job. So after my contemporary music degree, um, I got into the Royal College of Music, which was one of the few institutions that, that had a film music course. It was a postgrad one year uh, degree. It's called uh, Music for Screen, and it's still going. Um, so I got into that. There were only, I think, 10 of us on that course. And that's where I learned the craft of film music, just how to lay it onto the film, the technical aspects yeah. of it, because I had no idea. And also just practicing by getting together with other young uh, directors who were making animation films and mm-hmm. short films. And, and then after that, I thought, oh, well, now I'm going to get my first job. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it just didn't work out that way. It was really hard. And uh, I just couldn't find anybody that would give me a go yeah. that was making uh, programs for broadcast for television or films. You know, I signed up to Mandy.com and I would get my hands on every short film I could get my hands on. Yeah. Just to practice and just to try and get somewhere with these short films. And I got a job um, at the BBC doing something completely unrelated to music, thinking, oh, well, this this might help me make mm-hmm. connections. But it absolutely did not. <laughs> Nobody wanted to know at all. And I sent my reel to everybody, and you know, under the sun. And I was actually thinking, it was about six years later, thinking, oh, maybe I've just sort of got to give up now. 
And I went traveling and thought, okay, I'm just going to be a dive master now and <laughs> give up this silly dream. And a friend of mine emailed me and said, you know, the BBC is running a competition for finding the new TV composer. And he said, why don't you enter? I was like, oh, okay. So I went home and I wrote something and I had it performed. And lo and behold, I got into the finals. And then I won that competition. The prize was a commission to score a natural history film, BBC Natural World, yeah. which was my dream job. And so that's what I did. There was a, a lovely director I worked with. He volunteered to take on whoever was going to win the competition. Bless him, because I really didn't know anything. Yeah, that was it. Wow. So I met a load of people through that mm. and it just snowballed. That's an amazing story. It's almost if there's a there's a screenplay in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a short film. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a long oh. film actually, Tarkovsky. Because <laughs> it did feel um very frustrating I waiting bet. and waiting, just trying to get my yeah. foot in the door. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. You know, in terms of I remember with, with um my showreel and kind of getting so much negative feedback about my accent and no really? one, yeah, kind of no one, you know, go for elocution lessons and all You're that. You're joking, yeah, 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 all oh, that kind of stuff. Um, but it just takes that one person, doesn't it, to mm. to either see something in you to put you forward or suggest you do something, yeah, and then it's kind of like another door will open, yeah, for you absolutely. in a way. It's amazing. Do you think that there's a think back to that natural history program? Can you remember how you started work on it and what was the what was your journey into finding the right accompaniment to that I was in Bristol for that one um, and I rented a room I had my little laptop and my little keyboard <laughs> and it was freezing because the lady wouldn't put the heating on <laughs> and um, I remember receiving rough uh, cuts of the film mm -hmm. but going into the BBC Bristol unit quite regularly and sitting with the director and the editor and just watching and discussing the music and luckily, the director was just so lovely, very, very patient. I think he knew. And, you know, he had me around for dinner with his wife and family. And it was so lovely and, you know, just really put me at ease. And then, yeah, we just, it took about a month, I think, uh, got to Picture Lock. And then I don't even think I recorded that one. I think I was too scared. Oh, bless <laughs> but, uh, you. But it was, yeah. It that was... relationship's so important, isn't it? Yeah. It's funny because one of the things that's come out of quite a lot of conversations on this is about, as a composer, you have to be quite selfless mm. because you're not facilitating your wants and needs to create. You're facilitating the wants and needs of the film and the story and the characters. Yeah. So sometimes there might be kind of quite harsh comments in terms of when you're when you're on that journey to find out what's right and what fits. I think because I can't imagine that there's well maybe it does happen where you immediately get something right straight away first yeah. time, but I imagine a lot of the time it's a bit of a journey to get into that right sound and feel and texture of what you're what you're creating and you have to form this relationship with your with your team with the director and um, the editor as well yeah. and, and maybe some other of the creatives quite quickly yeah. I imagine absolutely that's exactly what it's like and I've learned over the years and it has taken years um, to not take it personally and not take it as a reflection of your ability um, because I think when you're starting out, you can just really doubt yourself and think, oh, I'm terrible, you know, yeah. or take all the comments very badly. But actually, it, it's essentially, you know, it, it's I don't want to say it's a business. It's more than that. But you're working towards yeah. the greater goal. Yeah. 
and music is so subjective too. Yeah. So you've got to consider that. You've got to sort of learn what the directors like, yeah. what kind of music they like to listen to, what kind of music works for their film, mm -hmm. and try and um, support that. Yeah. And just have belief in yourself that it's not you. And if it's not working out, it's a difference of opinion, a difference of um, taste as well. Yeah. Um, but it does take a long time to get to that point. Do you feel like you learn something with every project that you work on as well? You kind of, you know, I always come away from doing this and doing interviews just feeling like I've, I've learned something new about the process and about how, you, how things work. Yeah. So I'm so fascinated by how, it's all, how it all works and how the cogs turn with it. But do you yeah. come away feeling like every project you learn something, whether that's, you know, it could be a, a new instrument, discovering yeah. a new instrument yeah. or a different way of working? Yeah, absolutely. I do completely. And also COVID's thrown in some um, obstacles as well. Yeah. So it's learning how to overcome those. And then now I'm starting to do some projects in America. And so it's learning how they work over there as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm always learning. And yeah. because I like to take on different projects, I don't really like to stick to the same sort of genre mm -hmm. for too long. I'm always learning. One of the, the episodes on, on this that we talked about you in such great detail was with Bart uh, Leighton about American Animals, which was an absolutely phenomenal score. It was so great. And it was such an important part of that story. And it was interesting. I listened back to the chat and I, I'd forgotten that it was kind of Bart's first step into feature film. That's right. Um, yeah. And how terrified he kind of was kind of thing of yeah. the whole kind of project sort of thing. But I guess that's can be a healthy place to be as well yeah would you agree on that side of things as well for your yeah. your side of things absolutely somebody once said to me never take on a project that you can do <laughs> oh I like that <laughs> yeah I, was like, Ooh. <laughs> I remember being terrified about a project I was about to start and uh, that's what they said I think I don't know if that just to make me feel better but uh, <laughs> it worked yeah it worked <laughs> yeah go on sorry oh I was just gonna say um it's good that you've mentioned Bart because um, my collaboration with him uh, was instrumental in to how my career's really been going. And I feel like he and I started off together on, on his two films, The Imposter and American Animals. The Imposter was definitely the biggest thing I'd embarked on. to go on to American Animals where he pushed it even more and he was terrified and I was terrified <laughs> and we were all terrified <laughs> but it was also really great fun you know mm -hmm. it was a hard slog and Bart doesn't give you an easy ride and you know he knows that but yeah. he's so lovely about it and and you have such faith in his ability to produce something brilliant and I, I just loved American Animals so mm -hmm. you know you're willing to sort of work really yeah. really hard to get there.
does it when you are, I mean, both those projects in, involve the kind of based on real events, you know, kind of side of things. So you have a truth there in terms of the people. And I wondered whether that had any, was part of the conversation that you both had in terms of the the soundscape of those those individuals' lives at, at that time and in that period and whether that helped inform what you went on to compose. Yep. So we talked a lot about this sort of hybrid genre and also how how you score for doc and how you score for drama. Mm-hmm. Actually, with those films, I didn't really feel that there was much difference. And um, I mean, they're so alive and dramatic and it was trying to, well, especially for The Imposter, because that is more documentary, mm-hmm. it was trying to create a dramatic score, but still allowing the interviews to come through because it's so interview heavy mm. in The Imposter. There's constant talking and you don't want the music to get in the way of that. American Animals, where did you start with that? Because it, it's listening back to the score and the chat with Bart, it was really interesting because I'd forgotten how varied the score was. You know, it's got kind of these brilliant moments of kind of oceans heist kind of vibes to it. And then it's got kind of Morricone in there. It's got it's got these and then kind of the real kind of tense drama elements to it. It's got this wonderful kind of journey. The music's got a great journey as well as the journey you kind of go on with these characters. What was your starting point? Do you read the script? Do you what was what yep. was the starting point? So Bart sent me a script, and then I started writing to that. Uh, he wanted to hear music before the shoot, and uh, so I wrote um, a suite of tracks, maybe ten, I think. And of those ten, five stuck. Great. When we got to the edit, because um, I don't think you can really know until you do start editing. Mm-hmm. You might have thought, oh, these are great, and then you put yeah. them to picture, and they don't work. And um, did he explain to you why? He wanted music before he shot because it's interesting. Everybody works differently. Yeah. I think he just really wanted to feel confident that I was going to be able to produce something that was going to work for the film. Yeah. I think he was very nervous and, um, and I was too. So I wanted to get going early (laughs) (laughs) and he likes to listen to music on the shoot. And also, um, he, he was explaining to me, it just helps him to get into the zone. Mm -hmm. And so if I could give him music that reflected what he was yeah. going to shoot, then that would really help. Yeah, it was just mostly also just being nervous. I just wanted to be prepared and I wanted yeah. to try and to avoid temp music as well, Yeah, which is always a bit of a nightmare is it? when it gets into the cuts, <laughs> yeah. as I'm sure everyone t- tells yeah. me. So yeah, so I felt like I owned the score in a way, you know, when you can get it in early. Yeah.
it's also really interesting because like some people the script for some people is not enough you need like the performance is almost sometimes what they can kind of play off so did you get the opportunity to almost kind of do that side of it as well so you sort of you know you deliver this this suite to start with but then I guess the process continues through the shooting and the edit so that you are having the luxury of watching those performances and reacting to them yeah I was on board you know very intensely with that whole editing process which took quite a a number of months and I worked very closely with the editor Mm. and with Bart and I was always in the room with them discussing the music and discussing what the characters are doing and mm-hmm. you know this whole hybrid um genre where Bart was really pushing the boundaries it was sort of new to all of us and it was trying to work out how to just um just navigate through that and then also coming up with the different genres um like you say there's sort of an Ocean's Eleven type yeah of, uh, track in there you know it's a movie that's just has so many layers to it and you're sort of always being pulled in and out of the story and um you know you've got the real people you've got the fictionalized um actors in there and then you've got little moments of recollections that differ from one character to another so yeah. the music was always trying to support all those different elements challenge was to capture those different um, elements you know like the heist music's meant to be funny it's meant to be a moment where they pretend they're in Ocean's (laughs) Eleven and so you sort of have to pastiche that yeah Um, but then it also has to feel like it's part of the score That was the challenge. It was not. It was trying to make a cohesive 
score out of all the different genres. Because then you also have that lovely thing where you have, you're creating themes for characters. So in a way, the music is telling us things about that character that we're not visually seeing or, or audibly hearing through dialogue. Yeah. Do you like that side of it? Yeah, I do. I do like it, um, especially with, with Bart's films, because you, you never know what's truth and what's, you know, fantasy mm. and who's, you know, who, who's giving you the story, the, yeah. what actually happened. And yeah, it's nice to use the music to, little, to play on that, the lies. Kind and, of peeling back the curtain of the character yeah. in a way, isn't it? It's great. What makes you say yes to a project? What are you looking for as a composer at this point in your career? I was going to say, because last before that, it was just, <laughs> thanks for giving me a job, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> at this well point, past that now, well, well, I feel that. very, very lucky to be at that point where now I can choose my jobs. Um, I never thought I'd be able to, to do that. Now, it's got to be a story that I really, that speaks to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a director that I like to work with. And sometimes I don't know what they'll be like if they're new. Yeah. But if I get a, a good vibe in, in the interview, mm-hmm. there are some people I certainly would not want to work with or again. Yeah, it's the story and it's the people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been very lucky. The projects I've been on lately in the last few years, the teams have been incredible. Such, such lovely directors and showrunners and editors. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's been good. Um, I noticed as well that when I was looking at upcoming projects that you have, you're working on a new project that stars Oscar winner Ariana DeBose. Yes. (laughs) Um, Who I'm such a fan of. I got to interview her. She was on the show, actually. And she's an amazing human being. She's just this kind of ball of fun and energy and positivity and great role model, I think, for so many people. Yeah. And weirdly, when I was thinking about talking to you about writing for performance, I wondered whether, because I imagine that you you finished that project? No. No. Very interestingly enough, it hasn't even started for me. Has it not? No. Oh, wow, I'm ahead of the game here. I love this. (laughs) I've been on it since... Last March. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, but um, apparently the VFX are taking so long and there's okay. been lots of delays. So I haven't started it. Um, oh, wow. But I'm supposed to be recording it here in June. But um, where we are now, yeah. in Air Studios. I should yeah. say we are in Air Studios, actually, which is a real but... treat and a pleasure. We're in the same room together and we're yeah. at Air Studios where so many great scores have been. Have you, yeah. You've recorded here, haven't you? I've recorded here many times and I absolutely love it. Yeah, I feel like it's my home. In fact, I got a permanent room here Yay! Um, just before lockdown. Because uh, I was home, sort of sick of working <laughs> from home. I just got it done and then lockdown happened. Oh, so I, I hadn't even spent a day working in there. And then we moved out of London. So I'm, I've had to give it up. Aww. But I was so sad because I love it here. What was your, can you remember your first experience here? Ah, oh, I think that was Dark Horse. I was on a film called Dark yeah. Horse a long time ago, a documentary feature doc. And um, yeah, that was good.
what's it like recording here? Oh, I love it. I mean, the facilities are just, you know, world, <laughs> world class. Such nice people. And it's the people. Oh. It is mainly the people. I just love them. I feel a real connection and friendship with them. And yeah, they're just um, lovely. I have watched uh, one, two episodes of The Dropout, ah. which is fascinating. You're kind of, you, you and it's the story of, Elizabeth Elizabeth God, Holmes, who yeah. was the first female Silicon Valley self-made billionaire. Is That's that her right. right? Is that her right title? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was all lies. Yes. Um, it's the most bonkers story that you're kind of going, how did she get away with this? I know. Um, played fantastically by Amanda Seyfried. Yeah. Is it eight parts? It's Six, eight. Eight yeah. parts. Is that a luxury? So you have eight episodes, you know, of this because it's really clever as well. Is that the each episode is almost a different relationship that she has with a different character. The cast is phenomenal, yeah. yeah. Um, as well, Stephen Fry's in there. The men is various other one of the guys from Successions in there. The um, I've forgotten his name, uh, real name as an actor, but he plays the brother who's running, who wants to run for president in Succession. He's brilliant. But talk to me a little bit about this project and how it was presented to you, what the appeal was to work on it, and then, yeah, how you navigate your way through that much music as well. Yeah, that was, uh, I was sent the script um, for the first four episodes, and I was completely captivated by the story. Mm. I just thought, this is crazy. I'd actually never heard of Elizabeth Holmes. I I don't think in the UK it was a massive story for some reason. Some of my friends had heard about it. But yeah, then I started to read about her and thought, ooh, this is great. And then saw the cast and thought wow I mean this is a phenomenal cast you know it's gonna be great and the director I just really clicked with mm-hmm. um, and then the showrunner Elizabeth Liz Merriweather she's fantastic and yeah it was again you know an incredible team it was all done via zoom because it was they're all in LA and I'm here um, and I didn't go out there because I guess COVID, COVID. and all of that yeah. And it was a very quick turnaround. So I had a, a nice chunk of time at the very beginning to establish the themes and the sound. And, and, and it was good I had that because it went from sort of mini, you know, ensemble to, to full on electro, ele- electro yeah. yeah, which was something that um, happened sort of more organically rather than thought out at the beginning because maybe they wouldn't have chosen me I don't know (laughs) feels so right it feels so right um, it was so fun it was a little bit daunting at first because it's my first all electro score And I'm not a synth geek. I wish I was because I love all the flashing lights. <laughs> That's 
all I know. Different layers, you know, like the keyboardists in like one of yeah. those bands where they just have that you can't yeah, see exactly. them. Yeah, exactly. They've got so many keyboards on stands <laughs> in a kind of L-shaped or even a U-shape. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I wish I was one of those that knew what everything did, <laughs> but I'm not. But I love the idea of it. And so I just... um. I just messed around and came up with sounds and I, you know, I know there's a real, a bit like the contemporary music world, there's a sort of synth kind of snobbery, isn't there? Um, so I was trying to get that out of my head and not pay attention to the boys with their toys yeah, yeah, and yeah. just do what I thought felt right and sounded right. It ended up being so much fun. was also not the pressure of recording because that's another added layer of yeah. pressure and time and to be frank we didn't really have the time thank goodness it was all electric because it was really quick it was sort of an episode a week just wow. bashing it out very quickly but luckily I'd had that time at the beginning to come up with the themes um, so it was just sort of running running with the themes and yeah creating motifs for each of the different characters and yeah because every episode like you say has its own character it's really really clever it's funny you're talking about boys and their boys and their toys have you seen sisters with transistors no what is uh, that sisters with transistors is this documentary about female pioneers in the electronic music Ooh. world it's so you would love it you would love it and it's um it just celebrates a very small pocket of females through the years who have been unrecognized and celebrated pioneers in that world gosh that's amazing it's really really it? great yeah it's really interesting and it's it's really emotional as well and interesting to see how how fully immersive so much of it was at the time you know way back when it was kind of pre-craft work and all that kind of stuff yeah. and uh, how it was almost like art installation in a way yeah. for all these women who were exploring and Oh, it's beautiful. I'll I'll, wow, get, I'll send I'd you a, a to link to watch it. It's so, so, so special. And how sad that they weren't celebrated. I know. I and mean, it's, why don't we know about these women? And and also the director has kind of taken a bit of flack from a few people going, oh, why haven't you mentioned this one? Why she was like, well, because it was one film and, yeah. you know, I, I couldn't feature it. I wanted to give length and time and depth to these women's stories, but there are obviously more women whose stories yeah. need to be told. But it's not my role to tell everyone's yeah. stories. I'm just, these are the ones that I was able to, to get enough kind of, you know, footage of and archive yeah. and information on and, and people to kind of author it as well and stuff. But it's so interesting. It's really, really, really interesting. Do you find it's, it, it's not a conversation I've really had on the show, but I've obviously really try and get as many female composers on as I, as I possibly can. And I, I wondered in your time whether you've, whether it feels like there's still a, a kind of divide, not a divide, but if it's still a kind of 
bit of a battle for female composers in terms of getting opportunities or what it's like in the world? I think there is still a battle. And in the UK, I I never really felt any sort of chauvinism or mm-hmm. um, anything like that. And also, I suppose, because my first jobs were at Raw TV and with Bart, and there was never any question about me being a woman. It was just not never even talked about, about your talent. Yeah. yeah, I would hope so. So, and then I went to LA in for the first time in 2016. So that was before the Me Too movement happened. And I had a list of people I was going to see that my agent here had suggested I go see and my mm-hmm. publishers. And I saw these people and there were some comments that would, were made. And I, I looked at all the lists of, um, of composers on these agents' yeah. websites. And there were literally 50 to 100 composers on each of these agents in LA. And maybe I think there were like two or three women wow. across all of them. Yeah. And I... I was I was really shocked, and um, I thought, you know, maybe in the UK, I know there's not that many of us, but I would have thought mm. in Hollywood with so many composers and so much going on there, there would be a whole load of women there, but there just weren't there. And I'm, I, I know that there are women composers there because yeah. I know a lot of them. I'd see them at Sundance, but they just weren't represented and they weren't doing the big jobs. And there were a few comments, you know, I had someone say that women can't write action music and all just sort of weird things that were happening. What? I was thinking, did I hear that right? I came away going, I'm not sure I heard that correctly. He he must have not meant that. <laughs> and and, um, and wow. then, yeah, I just, you know, everywhere I went, there was it was just men everywhere. And um, I just sort of went back to the UK with my tail between my legs. And I thought, oh, this is not a place for me. It's just not right. <laughs> and um, and then Me Too happened, and I remember going to Sundance with American Animals, mm-hmm. and suddenly, you know, women were the hot topic. And um, I got uh, myself this incredibly lovely American agent, and she's just been pushing me for things. And she said, come out to LA now. It's totally different. So I went just pre-lockdown yeah. uh, in 2020, and it was completely different. Suddenly, all these studios wanted to meet with me, right. and I know with other women composers as well. And they were really making a big effort mm. to get us into the industry yeah. because it was sort of a boys club. And, I, and I've had mixed feelings about it, to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, the first time I was in the UK and somebody said, oh, they want a female composer for this film. And I was so shocked. I'd never heard that before. I felt slightly insulted and I thought, I, I don't need to get a job because I'm a woman, yeah. surely. And the interview was so uncomfortable because you could tell the director wanted to use his male longtime composer. Mm-hmm. It was just wrong and on every level. On the other hand, I don't know how else to break, for women to break yeah. through yeah. if it's not sort of forced upon. Yeah. My hope is it's forced upon mm-hmm. for five, ten years and then it just becomes the norm and yeah. you don't have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a friend of mine, when I, when I felt uncomfortable about that film, my male friend said to me, well, look, men have been giving men jobs because they're men for years. They just don't say it out loud. Yeah. So don't feel guilty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, that's yeah. a good way of looking at it. Do it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Do it. Um, what's next? You So this, this the project, the, the Ariana, what, what's it called again? Oh, it's called Sorry? ISS. ISS, okay. Yeah. So yeah, that's on pause for now mm-hmm. till, I don't know, yeah. to be determined. Um, <laughs> get their finger out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, yeah it's obviously. True. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but I'm working on a series called Dangerous Liaisons, which is um, to do with yes. film, which is so fun. It's, I saw um, the cast for this. It looks amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's really fun, and it's the prequel to where the film takes oh, off. Oh, wow. Remember the Oscar-winning film back yeah. in the 80s or 90s? I can't remember. John um, Malkovich and yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, oh, and Glenn God. Close. So it's the char- char- characters of Glenn Close and John Malkovich when they're young and when they first meet and how they become like that. It's based on a book. So yeah. um, so anyway, it's it's all of that. It takes place in the, during the just before the French Revolution. And it's just, it's so rich in story yeah. and history and it's beautifully shot. And yeah. Do you do, does that involve, because it's a period piece, do you, I don't know, do you dive into research for that? Do you look into specific things for that? or? Well, interestingly enough, this was a sort of a two-parter for me because I started on it last year. Um, there's a scene where I have I had to write an opera for one of the episodes and it had to be in the style. Wow. <laughs> just for 10 minutes, just 10 minutes. It had to be in the style of uh, 1700s, 18th century opera. Yeah. And um, what they would have been listening to in, Par- in Paris back then. Yeah. So I did my research for that and I wrote this 10 minute opera and it was probably my favorite experience of my life oh, in well now of, you've got to write a full opera <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't actually writing the opera that was fun but I got to go it was for the shoot so I got to go over there while they were shooting it and they performed it in the opera house in Prague where they filmed Amadeus which is one of my favorite films yeah what I found out is that the Amadeus production had restored that opera house because it was sort of fallen into disrepair oh, really? over communist times. So they'd gone over there. It's in Prague. Did I mention that? Yeah. yeah. Um, the production of Amadeus restored it so that they could shoot the opera scenes in there. In there. And it's also where Mozart himself conducted his opera. And so I was in there listening to my opera being performed with all these extras in period costumes and the actors there in period costumes just looking divine and these incredible uh, local opera singers. I just couldn't believe what I was watching and seeing. It was so moving. That's Um, amazing. Yeah, so that was fun. And now I'm doing the score, which is also fun. But that's, um, to answer your question, I'm not researching Mm -hmm. period music because they want quite a contemporary score for that one. Oh, that's good. Because I was going to ask because with Stephen Freer's film and Lovely George Fenton, actually, who I've spoken mm. to. He's a lovely man. I actually got the job when I was talking to him on the phone. And yeah. I said, I just got Dangerous Liaisons. <laughs> and he was like, what? <laughs> it was such a weird coincidence. How funny Oh, I love stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> That's amazing. He's yeah. a lovely man. I went around his house to chat to him. He'd be so oh, great. Yeah. But that's, I mean, uh, that's interesting that they want, to, they want it to have its own identity rather than it having any kind of connection yeah. or synergy with with the film yeah no it really does and and it's been great because there's hardly been any temp music on that one they've just let me experiment yeah. and have a go and it's just been really fun so um yeah great okay well we've got to get you back for both those then when, uh, they, when they're out and we can fine. talk about them and, and and we'll get to play some of your opera hopefully as well yeah um and i'm so excited because there's just so much going on for you and it's so deserved and thank you yeah and it's it's you know hearing your story as well even more so you know in terms of being totally committed to what you do and and um and yeah i look forward to to having you back on many times i hope thank you for oh, your time thank you for having me and finally made it happen yeah. <laughs> at air studios as well it's perfect I know. great thank Thanks, you Edith. 
From the score to Bart Layton's The Imposter, that's We Found a Kid rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the wonderful Anne Nicotin. My huge thanks to Anne for taking the time to talk to me and also a massive thanks to all the staff at Air Studios. It was an absolute treat not only to get the chance to chat to Anne and I really am grateful for her talking about her whole story really honestly um, but also to the team at AIR for letting us sit and chat. It was a real treat to be sat in that kind of incredible building where so much beautiful music has been made for film over the years so a massive shout out and thank you to the AIR team and hopefully we're going to be continuing working on a few exciting projects in the future. Now, as mentioned, um, you can head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes, including my conversations with the aforementioned Bart Layton and George Fenton. And as I said at the beginning of the podcast, please do follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtrack in UK. We'd love you to get in touch with us. Tell you, tell us all about your favourite episodes or who, in fact, you'd like to see on the podcast or maybe just talk about some films that you've seen and you've absolutely loved. You can do that via social media or email me info at edithbowman.com. Next up, uh, an interview that I actually recorded quite a while ago uh, and it's just been so busy that I haven't been able to uh, share it with you yet. But I'm very excited to share with you what I found to be an absolutely inspiring conversation with David Newman. Now, David Newman is a composer and arranger and producer who has been working in the the business for well over 25 years. He scored over 100 films, uh, everything from War of the Roses, Heathers, Matilda, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. But we talked more specifically about something he worked on recently. He was given the huge task to uh, arrange and produce the score, the legendary score that was already in existence by Leonard Bernstein for Steven Spielberg's version of West Side Story. So David Newman, also the fact that David Newman is a bit of a part of a bit of a composing dynasty, which you'll hear as we talk about his dad and also his brother Thomas in our chats. So David Newman, next up on Soundtracking, I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. 
Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. 